For that reason, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, for our Old Testament Scripture reading. It is a verse, I think, that many are familiar with, but are unfamiliar with its broader context. Here, uh, the prophet Zechariah is given a very, what we might call, weird vision. He's given a picture of a super menorah, a massive lampstand that sits in between two large olive trees. Now, in the ancient world, the lampstand used olive oil from those trees as its source of power, its source of strength, to, uh, to give light and heat. As we find in Scripture, the lampstand is a picture of the community, the, 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 the church of God, and the oil is a picture of the power of the Spirit. And yet, as Zechariah sees this vision before him, there, there is something that's quite strange because it is not the oil from the olive trees that are giving strength and vitality to the lamp. Rather, it is running in just the opposite direction. Here we see that the oil is flowing from the lamps and inundating the olive trees. And the Lord tells Zechariah that those two olive trees signify Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and um, Joshua, the high priest, as they are commissioned to build the temple. And the Lord gives uh, this very vivid word picture to Zechariah to tell him, uh, to depict for him this very thing, a truth that we find replete throughout all of Scripture, as verse 6 tells us, that it is not by might, nor is it by power, but it is by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, Judah, or I'm sorry, um, Zerubbabel and Joshua will not be able to perform their task in their own strength, but rather they must find their strength from an outside source, the Spirit himself. And that is the very thing that Paul speaks of today in our New Testament lesson. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as here we come to the apex of Paul's argument in this letter. From chapter 12, verse 11, through the end of the letter, it is kind of him giving his closing remarks. But here, uh, in uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 16, through chapter 12, verse 10, we are given uh, everything has been moving to this particular moment. This is the theme of Paul's letter, that God displays his power in our weakness. Now, if you recall, last week we stopped uh, uh, mid-argument through Paul's uh, writing. And so just to get a a little running head start, we're going to begin reading in verse uh, 16 of chapter 11 uh, through the end of chapter, uh, the end of verse 10 of chapter 12. But our sermon text will focus on chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I might boast just a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but I speak as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you, or if somebody devours you, or if they take advantage of you, if they put on airs or strike you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, again, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. 
Are they servants of Christ? Well, I am a better one. Again, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews those forty lashes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from these other things, there is still the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not burned? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped his hands. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would so work Uh, in us, uh, to see things from your perspective, as Paul has written here concerning how we are to understand weakness in this life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians who just recently passed about two years ago, uh, wrote in one of his books, uh, published about four or five years back, about the extreme difficulties that he faced growing up as a small child in England. He, uh, uh, when he was nine or ten years old, uh, was involved in a roading accident that left a, a massive hole in, in his skull. 
As a result, he was forced to wear this big, bulky helmet on his head for the next decade. And you think, well, at least he survived, but from his perspective, he speaks as a, as a schoolboy in the loneliness that uh, this had for him as an effect. How he wasn't allowed to play any sports in school, he couldn't play on the playground with his friends. There was the awkwardness of having this big bulky thing sitting on his head, and so he became something of a loner, uh, something of a bookworm. And the question that really plagued him for most of his life is, why did the Lord permit this? Well, Packer writes about this and publishing this really beautiful little book called Weakness is the Way. It's a a lovely title and I think summarizes the whole theme of the book of 2 Corinthians. Weakness is the way of the Christian life. If you read his book, you might be surprised that it is, in fact, just a short little hundred-page exposition of Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth. We struggle with our weaknesses, don't we? I think it's, it's so tempting to read passages like this when Paul speaks of being transported to uh, the gates of paradise itself and going, man, what an experience. I wish I had that. Uh, I think some of us may have, in fact, grown up in certain Christian circles where it is thought that that must be what the normal Christian life looks like here on earth. You know, kind of mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. We look at Paul writing and I think read, in my opinion, out of context, but we look at, and we say what a profound spiritual experience Paul had. And then we look at ourselves and we think, well, what's wrong with me? Why haven't I had that type of experience? And then we begin to look to those people within the church or within kind of the broader, broader evangelical world, those who kind of have that charismatic charm and persona. We go, ah, they must know what true spirituality is like, but I don't really know anything. I struggle with so many sins and temptations. I'm beset with so many weaknesses. And then we begin to doubt God's love for us. And we begin to try... Uh, to find ways in which we can prove our worth to others and even to the Lord. What we find here is that Paul works to shatter our perception of what true spirituality really is. For Paul, you cannot interpret the Christian experience in this life apart from the cross. This passage really brings us to the heart of Paul's argument, the very point that he has been laboring to drive home. What does the normal Christian life look like? I think the answer might surprise you. I want us to consider this passage in two halves. First, we'll consider the matter of restrained boasting in verses 1 to 6. And secondly, we'll consider the matter of constrained boasting in verses 7 to to 10. Restrained boasting and constrained boasting. Hopefully you'll see what I mean. Well, we pick up where we left last week in mid-argument that Paul continues to play the role of the fool. You see that here in verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting. He's already given his stated goal to demonstrate that there is, in fact, nothing to be gained by boasting. We must keep that, art, that, that point front and center if we're to understand what it is that Paul is saying here in the opening verses of chapter 12. 
If you recall, there are these false teachers who have boasted in these ecstatic, spiritual, mystical experiences to sort of one-up everyone around them. We read throughout the New Testament of these alleged false teachers, false prophets, making their way from community to community, claiming that they are true prophets of God, and then setting up shop in people's homes and eating them out of house and home, and then going from one community to another doing that. Remember, there's no Facebook, there's no internet, there's no text messaging system to warn folks of these people. And so Paul is having to reckon with these these wolves in sheep's clothing who have set up shop in the church of Corinth, and they have boasted and how spiritual they are, and the folks of Corinth are looking to them as being the spiritual gurus and celebrities, the way in which the Christian life should operate. And Paul says, okay, well, if we want to play this game, let's go ahead and play it. I'm doing this for a reason to show how stupid such thinking really is. And so here in chapter 12, Paul continues to play the role of the fool to the point of lunacy. Here he speaks almost like a, like a schizophrenic. As a man divided, he says, well, uh, let me speak to you. I know this guy. I'm not going to say it was me. I'm also not going to say it was not me. And he begins to speak of these various experiences that he had, but he speaks of it in the third person, and he keeps almost having to stop mid-sentence, every sentence, to apologize, talking about how he sounds so much like a madman. This profoundly spiritual experience that he underwent 14 years prior. Was it an out-of-body experience? Was it an in-body experience? Paul says, I don't know, but God knows. It was no less true and no less real. Where he was taken not to the first heaven, what we might call the sky, nor the second heaven, what today we might refer to as outer space, but he was taken up to the third heaven, the very presence of God. The language there of paradise It's that same language that Jesus says to the thief on the cross when he turns and says, this very day you will be with me in paradise. Paul is taken up into heaven. How special a moment. How many of us in here could ever claim we had an experience like that? If any of you raise your hands, we're going to have to have some type of discussion. (laughs) But to have the curtain pulled back, to see and to hear what no eye has seen nor ear has heard. It's like being shown somebody else's surprise birthday gift and then sworn to secrecy. Paul says, I I was taken up to the third heaven. I'm not allowed to say what I saw. But I tell you this, it was good. It's the very thing that Daniel speaks of his revelations. And you see in John, all these apocalyptic revelations throughout Scripture of of individuals being given a special peek behind the curtain for their own, uh, for, for a particular purpose, for their ministry, and yet they're told they're not allowed to talk about it. In the midst of all this, though, Paul talks about it as if he's boasting. He also feel, recognizes that we also distances himself from that experience. He refrains from boasting about it. This is why he keeps saying, well, I know this guy. I'm not going to say it was me, but I'm also not going to say it was not me. He's talking about a real experience, but he, and he's using it to make a point, but he also feels the need to distance himself from it. Why is Paul doing this? 
Well, I think this is consistent with the rest of Paul's letter here and in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. Paul is not trying to to, to create a special class of Christian, as if you have the, the ordinary Joe Christian, and then you have the mystic. And that's the problem with the medieval church. That's the problem with so much of Protestant evangelical culture today. We have uh, the, the regular Christian, and then you have those superstars. Those people that you fix, that go, oh man, look how they go. They're just hopping and skipping from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. They must be doing something right. Remember, Paul had already opened up his first letter to Corinth by calling all of them saints, despite all of their sinful struggles. And you read 1 Corinthians, and there are a lot of big sins that this church is struggling with. Yet the, uh, Paul says, all of you are saints, all of you who have been called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no distinction among believers, neither male nor female, rich nor free, Jew nor Gentile. All of us have same equal, unfettered access to the throne of grace. It's the point of Paul's whole letter. You do not judge what is truly spiritual by one's gifts or experiences. If that was the case, then some of us would have reason to boast, and some would think that they would have more reason to boast than others. I mean, to consider the alternative. A number of years ago, there was a book that came out. Uh, It was in uh, this big bestseller about this, this kid who claims that he died and went to heaven for but a few moments. And he came back and told of all these experiences. Turns out the book was a total sham. Shouldn't surprise anybody, but it hoodooed quite a number of people. But you think about Paul, Paul who really did get ushered up into heaven. Paul could have built his whole ministry on this one experience. Think of all the t-shirts Paul could have sold. Riding high the conference circuit, he could have started his own self-named ministry. No more need for bivocational work. You wouldn't have to worry about making tents during the day just to put food on the table. He could have drawn all the pagan mystics in with his stories of the invisible realm. He could live large and in charge if he but just kind of staked his claim on this one massive experience that he had where he was ushered into the courts of heaven itself. So we have to ask ourselves, why doesn't Paul do that? In fact, why does Paul even distance himself even as he speaks about these real things that he experienced? What we see here, even in verse 1, Paul says, as glorious as that experience was, it profits nothing. Doesn't make him a better Christian than anyone else. What he underwent was a manifestation of God's grace to him. Nothing more, nothing less. Paul refrains from boasting of this because he's in essence saying, I don't want you to think more highly of me than you ought. I don't want to give the false impression that I've had this unutterable personal experience because I am somehow more spiritual than you, as if I had done something to earn this. That's the case. Paul would have reason to boast. Paul's whole point in boasting is to show that he has nothing that he can boast about. Paul is telling the church here, do not believe me because of the visions, but believe me as a man who comes to you in suffering and in weakness. 
Here the folly of the cross is put on full display. Remember all the things that Paul has boasted about where he identifies himself in the first person saying, I have done this. I've experienced all these hardship, toils, imprisonment, shipwrecks, beatings. I've been hounded by Gentile and Jew uh, in the country, in the city. And then when he speaks of the spiritual highs, he goes, well, I know a guy who had these, these great experiences. Paul really embraces the suffering But then when he speaks of those mountaintop experiences, he actually puts some distance between himself and those experiences. Paul restrains from boasting. He refrains from boasting in these things. But more importantly, uh, we see, or I shouldn't say more importantly, but just as importantly, we see that the Lord also constrains Paul from boasting, as you see here in verses 7 to 10. If you look there in verse 7, twice Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. In other words, everything that's about to follow is done for a purpose, so that Paul himself might not boast. What did the Lord do to keep Paul from becoming conceited? Paul says, well, I was given a thorn. It's so striking, isn't it, that the first six verses, when Paul speaks of these mountaintop highs, so to speak, He always speaks in the third person, but now when he speaks of the suffering, he goes back to saying, and this happened to me. Perhaps Paul is trying to model what it looks like for the normal Christian experience. And yet Paul also erases any doubt that he's talking about anybody other than him with these spiritual highs that he spoke of in the first six verses. So you see in verse 7, for instance, he says, because of these surpassing revelations, this thorn was given to me. So Paul makes it very clear that he is the subject. He is that third man uh, in verses 1 to 6. Does that that make sense? Are you following here? It is still fully autobiographical, and yet he is really laying hold of those things. He is really boasting in his weaknesses. He begins to speak of this thorn in the flesh, What is the thorn in the flesh? I don't know. Might I suggest that nobody else knows either. You read a lot of study Bibles trying to talk about what it is, but Paul doesn't go any further than this, that it's some type of physical ailment. It is a thorn in the flesh. The point is not to ascertain what that form of suffering was, but really that it was a form of physical suffering. Paul highlights several features to this thorn. First, And this is the important thing. This thorn, whatever it was, was divinely given. Paul uses the passive here. A thorn was given to me. He makes it very clear that this is the Lord's doing to keep him from boasting. The Lord causes Paul to suffer in such a way that Paul pleads for relief. Whatever thorn this was, it is painful and it is debilitating. Paul speaks of it as an adversary. He speaks of it as a messenger of Satan. This is something that seems to be afflicting him and somehow from a human vantage point inhibiting his ministry. Second thing to note that this is not a pre-existing condition. Paul says it was divinely given as a direct consequence of being given that peak behind the curtain. Paul is like every other human being. He is not immune from pride and boasting. So Paul says, so that I would not get puffed up with this truly tremendous spiritual experience, the Lord 
says, well, I'm going to give you something else as well. You get a peek behind the curtain, but you also get a thorn in the flesh. And this is to keep you from getting puffed up. I think there's an important principle here. God sends adversity, He sends trial, and He sends suffering for many reasons, but one of those reasons is to keep sin at bay from exploding from the depths of our hearts. The Lord sends affliction as an antidote to our pride and our folly. There's an old John Newton hymn where he says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in grace. And the Lord says, you want it? I'll give it to you. And then the Lord begins to beset him with many trials, many weaknesses, and great despair. In the last verse of the hymn, he says, Lord, I asked for grace. Why? Why won't you deliver me from these trials? And the Lord's response is, Well, you wanted grace. I'm delivering you from your own self-sufficiency. These inward trials I employ uh, to to wean you off of yourself and to actually wean you onto the grace of God. I think when we pray for grace, we pray for us to be left alone and to be given great comfort so we could continue doing whatever it is that we were doing before. But the purpose of God's grace is to wean us off of our own pride, to wean us off of our own Uh, self-sufficiency and autonomy to teach us to rely on grace, and that is only done in the midst of trial and suffering. Such is the path of the normal Christian life. It's not something that the false teachers are teaching, because the false teachers know nothing of the cross. If the Christian life was all fluff and puff, our pride would just continue to swell. Our heads would get so big, none of us could walk out those double doors in the back of the church. Our sin must be mortified and crucified. Scripture calls us to be active in doing that, but we find that the Lord loves us so much that He is more zealous to see our sinful egos crucified than we are. And so our Heavenly Father, Taylor, makes for each and every one of us a cross. A tailor-fit cross that we might be constrained from boasting. The Lord gives us so many good things, but He knows the proper dosage to give to keep us in reliance on Him. He knows the grace that's needed uh, in those good things. He knows the grace that is needed in the midst of trials. And He gives the perfect measure to each and every one of us, like the great physician that He is. Paul prays for deliverance three times for this thorn to be removed. Was Paul wrong for doing so? No. We see that the Lord does not rebuke Paul for praying this. This is not a sinful prayer. The book of James even tells us to pray for deliverance from our afflictions, to pray for healing. We're not called to enjoy suffering. If you're enjoying suffering, then perhaps, might I suggest, something is wrong with you. But we're Americans, so I don't think that's a problem that we have, enjoying and delighting in suffering. We find that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ prays a similar prayer. Our Father, please remove this cup from me. But Jesus prays that on one condition. If you will, remove this cup from me. 
We must be reminded that we are free to pray for deliverance. We are actually called to do so. And we should know that the Lord will answer us and deliver us in due time, either in this life or the life to come. We are, we are free to pray that. But we should also know that God is free to say, no, not yet. You still need to undergo this trial for a season longer. This is the path of Scripture. God sends spiritual burdens to cure our sinful pride. This is for our good. Sometimes He sends the thorn for a second reason, though. Not just to cure us of our pride, but also that His power might be put on full display. This is not, this is not a new teaching to Paul. This is the sum and substance of the whole Bible. You think of Abraham where the Lord promises Abraham a son. Does Abraham have the son at 25? No. Paul is very clear in Galatians. Paul and Sarah have the child when it is far past their prime in being able to conceive and give birth. Why? To show that this is the son of promise, that this did not come from human striving or human exertion, but this is solely of the grace of God. God's power was manifested in their impotency, in their barrenness. You think of Moses when Israel prays for 400 years for deliverance, and the Lord finally sends a deliverer, and he confronts Moses in the wilderness and appoints Moses to be his mouthpiece. And Moses says, I can't speak in public. I have a fat tongue. Don't know if it's a stuttering problem, but for whatever reason, Moses felt like he was unable. He says, I am not the right guy to be the mouthpiece for the living God. So what does the Lord do? He appoints his brother Aaron, to speak on his behalf to help him and aid him, but it's very clear. The Lord demonstrates his power over Pharaoh through a stuttering preacher. When Israel enters the land, it's overrun with giants. And Goliath has overpowered the armies of Israel. Who will deliver them? Not another giant. Not another soldier in full armor, but a runt with a slingshot. So that God's power may be made manifest in the midst of human weakness. Weakness is the way. So you have such a limited view of God's power. You think of the doctor's reports. If, if you get a, an ill-fated report and you pray, Father, deliver me, that's a, that's a good prayer. It's a godly prayer. And we're told in the Gospels that Jesus, the healings that he, and miracles that he performs authenticates his work as the Messiah, where he heals the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the mute. But more often than not, we see that those kind of miraculous things don't happen, but it doesn't mean that God is somehow absent. God still displays his power through human weakness. We forget and fail to see that, that God displays his power however he wants and in every way he wants, either through it kind of divine, miraculous healing like he did uh, through Christ and the apostles, or even in the midst of weakness in sustaining us to demonstrate that his power and his grace is sufficient for all that we need. Think of God's grace to this church over the, the turmoil of the past year, two years. 
the midst of the pandemic. It is to show that God's power is manifest in our weakness and suffering. That God is God and He is real and He is there and He is not silent. God displays His power in such a manner as He sees fit in such a way that we can take zero credit for it. So when we boast, we cannot boast in our own perseverance. We cannot boast in our own achievements. We cannot boast in our own pastor, our own elders, our own deacons, our own financial uh, revenues. The only thing that we can boast in is the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through faith in Him. Weakness is the way. It is the path of the normal Christian life. And so Paul says thus, I will be content in weakness. Whatever form those weaknesses come, be it insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, be it natural disaster or a medical crisis, be it financial ruin, economic hardship, be it persecution from uh, the government or trials and hardships and schisms from within. Paul says, I will be content in all of these things. The word contentment there gives the, the idea and the connotation of, 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 of delight. Again, we're not delighting that we are suffering. Paul says, I'm going to be content in it. Because I know that even when I am in the deepest, darkest valley, the Lord is still with me. Paul speaks of his, the fellowship of Christ with his sufferings in Philippians chapter 3. David speaks of it in Psalm 23, that even though I walk through the valley, the low point of human existence, the valley of the shadow of death, I will still fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord sends trials to teach us that his grace is sufficient for all that we need for life, and for godliness. Calvin puts it like this. He says, while we must fight throughout life under the cross, our condition is harsh and wretched. Happiness promised us in Christ does not consist in outward advantages, such as leading joyous and peaceful lives, and having rich possessions, being safe from all harm, and abounding with delight, delights such as the flesh commonly longs after. No, our happiness belongs to the, to the heavenly life. Thus it is that we may patiently pass through this life with its misery, hunger, cold, its contempt, its reproaches, and its other troubles, being content with this one thing, that our King will never leave us destitute, that He will provide for all of our needs until our warfare having ended, we are called to triumph. For the Christian, as a weary pilgrim in this life, weakness is the way. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that your grace would be all-sufficient, that you would sustain us in the midst of our trials, that you would deliver us in your good timing, and that in the midst of such affliction, you would sustain us to manifest your power and to teach us to rely solely upon you and be content with that. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.